Welcome to Simplify. I'm Ben Schumann Stoller. Simplify is for anybody who's taken a close look at their habits, their happiness, their relationships, or their health, and thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. In this episode, you'll hear my co-host Caitlin Schiller talk to sex and relationship advice columnist Dan Savage. How do I describe how important Dan Savage is? He's a force. If you've ever heard sexual terms like monogamish, GGG, sex positive, price of admission, Santorum, I mean, I could go on, you can thank Dan Savage. He also has a podcast called The Savage Lovecast. It's often in the top 20 in the iTunes store. Uh, he's written four books and numerous op-eds. I'd especially point you toward his book, American Savage. If you want something to read of his or just look up his advice column called Savage Love and start reading. I should add that there's quite a bit of swearing and sexual vocabulary in this episode, so you might want to have the kids earmuff it if you're blasting this on your way to dropping them off at school, or uh, tell Alexa to turn it down if you're playing it on your Echo speakers in your living room. After the interview, Caitlin and I go a bit deeper into the ideas and the books covered in this episode, so by the end of the episode, you should have a really good idea of how you can simplify your sex life and relationships. In fact, I promise you, you will. All right, let's get into it. Here's Caitlin Schiller and Dan Savage. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining me on Simplify today. Could you just introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dan Savage. I have been writing Savage Love, a syndicated sex advice column for 26 years. And uh, I am the host of the Savage Lovecast, which is a long-running and pretty popular sex and relationship advice podcast, uh, in addition to lots of other things that I do. 26 years. That's a that's a good long time to be in the uh, the advice industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> I usually call it the advice industrial complex or the racket. <laughs> yes. When's the last time you got a question that actually surprised you? Every day. Yeah, you write an advice column or you host a show like The Lovecast and people think you have all the answers and you uh-huh. have to admit, you know, you have to, every once in a while someone says that to me, oh my God, you have all the answers. And I look at them and I say, I don't print questions I don't have answers for, which creates the impression I have all the answers. But there's lots of questions that I don't have any answer for. And I'll go maybe sometimes find the answer and then uh, write about it as if I knew it all along, or I just don't answer those questions. (laughs) That's actually a huge comfort. Uh, If you look back at what you've learned through all these years of professional advice giving, what are a couple of things about about relationships that are actually a hell of a lot simpler than you initially thought they were when you started? Oh, golly, that's hard. Because uh, relationships are so complicated because people are so complicated. Mm. But people make it worse. Uh, people make what is already complicated, already difficult, uh, harder and more difficult by clinging to uh, bullshit, clinging to fictions. One of the things that constantly comes up when you write a sex and relationship column uh, for men and women is I'm not enough for her. I'm not enough for him. He's threatened by the vibrator. She's mm. threatened because he looked at porn. And you know the, the, the simple answer to, I worry that I'm not enough for him, is you are not enough for him. Mm-hmm. No one can be all things to another person sexually or in any other way. Emotionally, you know, professionally, politically, no one person can be everything, can be anyone's everything. But we pretend we're supposed to be. We pretend uh, and we convince ourselves that our partner is supposed to be, even as we know that uh, they aren't, you know, we tell ourselves that, you know, there's something wrong if our partner looks at somebody else because we should be their everything. We're checking other people out ourselves. So we know that someone can be the person you pick, the person you want to be with, the person you settled for, uh, and you can be very happy with that person and you still lust in your heart, as Jimmy Carter said a million years ago. <laughs> but when we're confronted with evidence that our, that our partner is also having those same feelings, we 
have a meltdown and run to our computer and send Dan Savage an email. Mm-hmm. And it, you know things would be so much simpler if you could just accept that. Like, of course, your partner uh, is attracted to other people. They should be considerate about it. They shouldn't rub your nose in it. But you shouldn't be policing them for evidence uh, of what you should just accept to be true. Mm-hmm. You know, if you catch your partner taking a discreet look at the rear end of your waiter, you should just let that go. Mm-hmm. And if we could all stop policing each other for what we should just accept – we would generate a lot less conflict in our relationships. I think that's really, really true. I don't know. I think that people can be really punitive um, if they feel like they're checking out the wrong person. So their attitudes about themselves get turned around on their partner. What What do you tell them? How do they start to unclench a little bit? You just tell them to get the fuck over it. You tell them, you know, that they're the engine of their own misery. And sometimes that helps people. You're the engine of your own misery. Mm-hmm. And then you can have a different conversation with your partner about it that comes from a different place. Not you should never check anybody out. But you know what? It hurts my feelings. It makes me feel insecure when you check someone out in front of me so obviously. So I would like some consideration. I would like you to be a considerate partner. And if you're going to check somebody out, could you be subtler? Or you could do it when I go to the bathroom. Can you do it when my back's turned? <laughs> Not don't ever do it because that's an unreasonable ask and that just sets us up for conflict and failure. But, you know, there's a time and a place to do it and there's a way to do it. Mm -hmm. It's just like the porn problem, which is usually, you know, not always, but usually women have the problem with porn. And the answer isn't find a guy who doesn't look at porn or forbid your guy from looking at porn because all men look at porn. There's a famous study in the UK where they tried to measure, uh, you know, the attitudes or preferences of guys who view porn against guys who don't. And they had to cancel the studies because they couldn't find any guys who don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so what you should say to your partner is, I'm going to pretend you don't look at porn and you're going to pretend you don't look at porn. And if your partner then goes out of the, goes out of their way to cover their tracks and to be considerate of your insecurities, if you should stumble over evidence every once in a while that they look at porn out of gratitude for their efforts to keep this out of you, most of the time you should turn a blind eye to that. And there is a workable agreement. Not you can never check anybody else out because I'll explode in a rage, but maybe you can check people out more subtly. You know what, out of consideration to you know how porn makes me feel insecure, you could not leave a browser history packed with pornography because it bothers me. And then what your partner is demonstrating is that they care about how you feel. Even if they can't and, and won't submit to being policed. Because mm-hmm. uh, people have a right to some erotic autonomy, and your brain is your brain. And people have fantasy lives that aren't necessarily just about their partners. Absolutely. I've been listening to your podcast now for, I don't know, five years or so. And I started listening to it when I went through a really bad breakup with the guy that I moved to Germany for. Ah. And, um, you know, it really. It really turned things around for me, the way that you talk about relationships and loving each other and this idea of of coming to workable agreements was something that I'd never really considered until I started listening to you. And um, I think it's just, it's remade most of the relationships in my life, not just the romantic ones. So we owe you a lot. Yeah, I want a top of everyone's sex life. I think I should get 10% off the top. <laughs> Do you want like, just the tip? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, one of the things that you say that I'm, I've always been pretty fond of and I've used on my friends is every relationship you have will fail until one doesn't. Um, This to me is the epitome of simple advice. And you end up giving a lot of this. You give really, really straightforward advice that seems simple, but it's super tough to swallow sometimes. How does that make you feel having to tell people these very simple things over and over again? Um, What what is it like to, to have to dish this out every day? You know, it's funny, uh, Emily Ophi, who wrote Dear Prudence for 10 or 11 years at Slate, uh, recently uh, stopped. She had a way of turning a phrase into a knife and slipping it between someone's ribs. 
And she said after 10 years, like, I've said everything I need to say about sex and relationships. I have nothing more to say. And I thought, what the hell is wrong with me? (laughs) (laughs) I think what's wrong with me is uh, I have a hole in my head. Uh, I drove a nail into my head by accident when I was in fourth grade. Um, And I have this kind of Groundhog Day life where I have been doing this column and now doing this podcast. My weeks are always the same. My days are always the same. Um, And I enjoy it. And I'm incredibly forgetful. And... uh, and I smoke a lot of pot. And so it doesn't feel like I'm tackling the same issue or same question all the time. I will get the same question for the millionth time and it'll seem brand new to me because I can't remember when I tackled that same issue or question previously. You know, I've had people send me, uh, you know, a, a paragraph uh, and I'll, be, I'll read it and I won't realize until later in their letter that they're quoting me back to me. I won't recognize it. <laughs> so that's how I do it. Alcohol pot and the nail I drove into my head in fourth grade at St. Ignatius grade school in Chicago. I kind of want to know more about this nail. How did that happen? Uh, I was running and we were playing kickball in a gymnasium uh, at my grade school in Chicago, mm-hmm. 70s. And uh, <laughs> before, you know, they began bubble wrapping the world for fear of lawsuits. I was running to home plate, which, you know, is the faggy, effeminate little boy I didn't get to do very often. But somehow I kicked the ball far enough to have a home run. And I tripped over Mike Lipte, who was at home plate trying to catch the ball to tag me out, and just went ass over heels and flew face first into a wall with a nail sticking out of it. Oh, my God. Rusty nail, (gasps) a brick wall in a gymnasium in Chicago at fourth grader head height. Uh, and it, you know, punctured my brain. I have a big, uh, I have a big lump on the, I'm at the top of my forehead and a scar. It used to be a hole that you could kind of feel soft tissue through, but it boned over and, uh, late in high school, I was stuck to the wall with the nail in my head. And what the doctors told my parents when they tried to explain why my skull was in 80,000 pieces when I got to the hospital was if you slid a Coke bottle down on a nail and jerked the Coke bottle hard to one side and the nail didn't give, the bottle would shatter. And stuck to the wall for a little while with blood streaming all over the place. Uh, and I jerked my head really hard to one side to get off the wall and kind of uh, shattered my skull. Oh, my goodness. I know. And it's the secret to my success because although I still have headaches from it, I uh, get up every day and I'll get, you know, the millionth question about uh, a particular thing and think, oh, I've never tackled this one before. And then someone will have to remind me that I wrote about it two weeks ago. Um, you started this job, this job, you started in the, in the advice racket, quote unquote, when you were in your twenties. Um, is there any piece of advice that you've given in the past that you would now revise based on experience you've gathered or something that you feel is true now that you didn't before? Oh, absolutely. Um, the first time I wrote about the clitoris, I put it in the wrong place. <laughs> I was a 26 year old gay kid who started writing the sex advice column for straight people. And it was pre Google. So I couldn't just Google clitoris and know all about it in a second. I would have had to get an anatomy textbook or ask a woman, uh, neither of which I was prepared to do when I was a callow 26-year-old fag advice call. <laughs> Turns out the clitoris is not on the soft palate. That's where mine is, but it's not where everyone else is. <laughs> but also, you know, I said things about men and women that were kind of broadly accepted to be true that now we know from the data and more research and more study and more thought aren't true. Um, women are no better at monogamy than men are. Women are terrorized more effectively than men are. And as you know, we used to look at the stats 20, 30 years ago, and men were a lot likelier to cheat. Uh, and we would go, oh, women are good and men are terrible. And now the stats show that women under 40 are as likely to cheat as their male counterparts. So women being 
better at monogamy was about fear and insecurity, not about a desire gap. Mm-hmm. You know, women are subjected to sexual violence. Sexual transmitted infections are likely to pass from men to women. Certainly pregnancy is more of a risk for women. Slut shaming is more of a risk for women. The consequences, the cost of sex is higher for women. And we looked at that and said, well, why are men so slutty and women so reserved? It's like because of those higher costs, not because of a lack of desire. And once women had more economic security and economic power of their own, those costs decreased. And you've seen now the uh, infidelity gap disappear uh, for women under 40. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I say the problem with monogamy was men and penises. And now we know it's that was not is not the case. Right. But there's all sorts of examples. You know, I used to be a male bisexuality skeptic, uh, and now I am not. You know, I never doubted the fact that there were male bisexuals out there and guys who were bisexually identified, uh, and also guys who were bisexual. I just thought many to most of them were uh, like I was when I was coming out on their way to gay, and that's absolutely not true. And there's now data and research that bears that out that I write about in my book, American Savage. So there's, there's lots of examples. You know, the, the column has always been a conversation that I'm having with my readers and sex researchers and, and other thinkers about sex. And it has been a, a, as much an education for me over the years as it has been for my readers. I'm not Moses coming down from the mountaintop, sex tablets. Um, I'm a part of a conversation, a part of dialogue. And new things pop up and you're like, what? You got, you got to be kidding me. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's a thing. And it's an important thing. And it's a thing that we need to acknowledge and talk about so that people can discover themselves and, and find their identity and find the words for it so they can be happier and healthier and and, uh, and and be themselves. Yeah. It's hard to know what we are until there's a word for it. There's always been great comfort, I think, in to me and probably to you as a person who obviously has a lot of tenderness and, and takes a lot of delight in words. Um having the right ones that explain the things in the right ways is is really important. Labels are important. Uh, I reject utterly people who say, can't we all just be people? Why do we have to have labels? Well, there's nothing about having a label that makes you not a person too. And if you are a, a sexual minority, uh, which is a kind of invisible minority, without that label, you can't, not, not only can't you come to a deeper understanding of who you are, but you can't find each other. Mm. A lot of people who say, why do we have to have labels are either heterosexuals who don't need a label because they're correctly labeled by default because since almost everyone is heterosexual, the assumption is you're straight until you say you're not. So heterosexuals who say, why do we need labels? They don't need a label because they're going to be labeled accurately regardless. Of course. And they have the luxury of rejecting labels because they know, I think subconsciously they don't need it because they got it. Um, And the only other people who say, why do we need labels are people who don't, who are closet cases, you know, whichever closet they're in who fear the label because they don't want to be, out. They don't want to be known to be who they are. And so labels scare them. The rest of us, for lesbians, gays, bi, trans, asexuals, uh, intersexuals, and on and on and on, those labels are really important and empowering. Absolutely. This week on Simplify, we want to give a quick shout out to a podcast we really like. It's called How Do We Fix It? And How Do We Fix It? is by Richard Davies and Jim Miggs, two journalists. Uh, They've covered everything from personal finance to space exploration. And what's cool is in their past, in their history as journalists, they've become basically fed up about how people complain about the world. They don't do anything to fix it. So they talk about innovative thinkers just for 30 minutes uh, about how to actually fix stuff. That's why it's called How Do We Fix It? They've talked to Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, exclamation mark, Charles Duhigg, also exclamation mark, and more 
Go search How Do We Fix It and um, check it out. Tell them we say hi. Now let's get back to the interview with Caitlin Schiller and Dan Savage. Speaking of labels, uh, monogamish is your term and it's what you're sort of known for. I wanted to ask you, what does relationship utopia look like <laughs> to you? Monogamish, is that it? Like, t- talk to me about it. Pretend that you get to adjust the world tomorrow to to be harmonious and have sexual and romantic utopia for, for people all over the world. What, what would you do? What are some of the changes you'd make? I don't think everyone has to be non-monogamous, which people often accuse me of believing or advocating for. Non-monogamy is a spectrum, whereas monogamy is one thing. Uh, You have to find the relationship model that works for you. And you don't see a lot of non-monogamous people running around saying monogamous people are doing it wrong, doing love wrong. But as a non-monogamous person, I'm, you know, a person in a non-monogamous relationship, I'm often told by monogamists that I don't really love my husband, that we're not really committed, otherwise we couldn't do that. I would never say that to a monogamous person. Oh, you're monogamous? Mm. That's not love. You don't love your husband if you're monogamous to him. So I support people who want to have monogamous relationships. You can have a better monogamous relationship and one that's likely to survive if you're in a monogamous relationship with someone who also wants a monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. Living in a world where people who are non-monogamous can be open about that, can understand that non-monogamy is as valid a choice and as loving a choice if that's what both people want. As monogamy means there's going to be less monogamous people married to non-monogamous people and therefore less cheating, less divorce, less bad shittery. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, you know, if I could change the world, uh, a lot of the things I would change would help people who want to be non-monogamous be non-monogamous, but also help people who be monogamous have successful monogamous relationships. And the way to do that is, you know, the thing I would like to change is successfully executed over 50 or 60 years. Monogamy is not the sole measure of a relationship success or someone's love and devotion. Monogamy is the only thing that we tell people that they have to execute perfectly throughout their entire lives to be any good at it. You can be the world's greatest snowboarder and fall the fuck down and still be the world's greatest snowboarder. You can be the world's greatest chef and burn an omelet and still be the world's greatest chef. But we tell people, you know, you're with somebody for 50 years and you find out that that person cheated on you once. Oh, my God, they were terrible at monogamy. Oh, my God, you've been so brutally violated. You know, you're with somebody that cheated on you once or twice. They were pretty good at monogamy. They were actually really kind of great at it. They only fell once. All right. And if people could except that monogamy is like snowboarding, (laughs) Uh, then, you know, a monogamous relationship is likelier to survive the almost inevitable infidelity that's going to touch it over the course of 50 or 60 years. You know, we know from the stats that, you know, we used to say 60-ish percent of men and 40-ish percent of women, and now it's like 50-ish percent of both, cheat over the course of a long-term committed relationship. And these stats are hard to come by because people lie about cheating. People play it down, so they're probably low. And those men who cheat and those women who, who cheated, they're all married to each other. Right. Odds are, if you're with somebody for decades and decades, one or the other or both of you have cheated. And if you're committed to each other, if you're committed to the relationship, you should be able to, to get through that, to, to survive it. And we should tell people, you know, when they're getting married, and that's what I say to people I know who are getting married, when one or the other of you cheat, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And if you say before it happens, you know what, that'll violate the terms of our agreement and our commitment to each other. But right now at the start from this place of love, let's commit to trying to, to save the relationship. That our commitment is to each other, not necessarily to monogamy perfectly executed over the course of 50 years. Mm-hmm. This thing has happened to me a few times where somebody who's curious or I'm on television, I had this conversation with Jenny McCarthy when I was on The View, where you know I talked about non-monogamy on the show. And uh, being in a committed, long-term, non-monogamous relationship. I've known my husband for 23, 24 years now. 
And she said, as others have said, oh, I could never do that. Um, you know, I just, I value commitment too highly. All my marriages have been monogamous. All your marriages have been monogamous. Right. You're committed to monogamy. You were committed to any of the people you married. I'm committed to Terry. I'm not committed to monogamy. Right. And you're telling me that my commitment is somehow less valuable than yours. You know, you're the, you're the morally superior person because mm. when you are married to someone, you are monogamous to them. And then you end that marriage and you, you're monogamous to someone else. And that doesn't look like commitment to me. Mm-hmm. What, what does commitment look like to you? Uh, continuing to not break up. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I think that's a great definition. Sometimes people ask me, Terry, what's the secret to your success? And we both look at each other and we say, well, we just keep not breaking up. Uh, I mean that in a sort of joking way, but I'm also really serious because I have friends who are perpetually, you know, who are single, who like get in relationships and break up and heartbreak and heartbreak. And they'll come to me and they'll say that they're just so jealous of, you know, what Terry and I have. And then I'll ask them, why did you break up? And they'll tell me what the incident was, you know, what the fight that led to the breakup. And I'll laugh in their faces and just think, you know how many times Terry and I have had that DEFCON level of fight and didn't break up? The problem isn't that you, you know, your relationship failed. You walked off the field because you had a big fucking fight. Mm -hmm. And this is a simplifying point I'd like to make. Mm -hmm. People have it in their heads that they need to perfect their relationships, that if they just keep pushing at this issue, that they'll have a breakthrough one day and then it'll go away or it'll be resolved to everyone's satisfaction. And, you know, there's things in a long-term relationship that you just have to sidestep, things that th- that person is never going to do differently or never do better. Uh, mm-hmm. I like to call it paying the price of admission. You pay the price of admission, you ride the ride. If it's not a price of admission you're willing to pay, don't ride the fucking ride. Mm-hmm. If you pay the price of admission and get on that roller coaster, you don't spend the entire time you're on the roller coaster bitching about how much it costs. You just eat the cost and shut the fuck up and enjoy it. <laughs> People can do that when it comes to restaurants and buying houses and riding roller coasters. They have a hard time doing that in relationships. You know, the example I always like to use is Terry's kind of a slob. (laughs) You know, he makes a sandwich and leaves the bread and the mayonnaise and the ham and the lettuce all out on the counter and finishes the sandwich and gets up, leaves the table and his plate is on the table. And I would for years chase him, be like, put the fucking bread away, put the fucking meat away. We're all going to die of food poisoning. Can't you put it in the sink? For fuck's sake, be a grown-up. And then mm-hmm. I just, after he ate, put the bread away, put the mayonnaise away, put the meat away, and put his plate in the dishwasher. And I thought, that was easier. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's the price of mission I'm willing to pay to be with him, to ride that ride, um, is to, I am going to always be the person who, when he makes a sandwich, has to put everything away. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, we jokingly acknowledge that, but I don't bitch about it. Mm-hmm. I don't like it, but I don't complain. Yeah, It doesn't get us anywhere. It didn't ever change him, all the complaining I did. And now there's less, a little less conflict in our relationship because I'm not always screaming at him to put his plate in the sink or the dishwasher. I just do it. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe it's even a gay relationship because a lot of this shit when it comes to living together can be gendered. Like I pick up after him. If I was a woman, maybe I would resent that more mm. because I would sit there going, is this just sexism? Am I being consigned to this role because of gender? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you know, he does the laundry and I straighten up. I, I'm not, it's not sexism. It's just living together and paying the prices of admission that must be paid for there to be peace in the house. Before you were saying, when we were talking about labels, that it's for heterosexuals, they don't really understand that labels are important because it's just easy for them. It's just, that is the default. They don't have to think about it. But 
I sometimes think about how people who, um, I don't know, people who have never experienced anything in the realm of kink or, or just completely heterosexual, they don't talk about what they like and what is important to them because they just assume that everything works one way. It's, it's huh. like a weird, it's a weird disadvantage, you know? It's the gay superpower. Mm-hmm. We, we have to communicate and you guys don't. Consequently, mm-hmm. better at sex, we have more sex, we know more about sex. Mm-hmm. You know, when a man and a woman go to bed together, usually conversation about sex and negotiation stops at consent because everything that's going to happen next is just assumed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's straight sex, vaginal intercourse. That's what's going to happen. Maybe there'll be some rolling around and kissing, maybe a little oral on the way, but mm-hmm. penetrative sex. When two guys go to bed together and they get to, yes, they get to consent, that's the beginning of a whole other conversation. And mm-hmm. usually it's framed with what I like to call the four magic words that begin every gay encounter. Where mm-hmm. one guy will look at the other guy, someone will say, what are you into? Uh-huh. And you can rule anything in, anything out. Uh, and often what a guy will say is, I'm not into anal. And the other guy doesn't freak out. Could you imagine some straight guy saying, what are you into? And the woman looks at him and says, I'm not into vaginal. <laughs> what? Uh. So he's like, yeah, I want to oral sex. I want to roll around. I want to, I want mutual masturbation. Here's my vibrator. Here are my toys. Um, and, but gay people can say that. And gay people do say that to each other. Uh, and so we're forced to have this conversation. It's not because gay people are morally superior. It's not because we're magic. It's that we're forced to have this conversation that most straight people sidestep and no straight and straight people are not forced to have about mm-hmm. interest, desire, uh, and what's on the menu and what we want. And, uh, you know, I always like to say, and I'm sure if you've been a listener to the podcast, you've heard me say this. Um, if you looked your mother in the eye when you were 15 and told her you're a cocksucker, looking your boyfriend in the eye or somebody you just met on Tinder or Grindr or Recon or whatever and telling them that you want to do X, Y, and Z, telling them what your actual sexual interests are is not scary in comparison mm-hmm. to telling the mother you're a cocksucker. <laughs> telling your boyfriend that you want to you know, do bondage or get pissed on or uh, you like to be called names when you get fucked or whatever it is that turns you on, easy in comparison. Straight people have a really hard time with that, being honest with their uh, partners, uh, new sex partners or long-term sex partners about who they really are sexually and what they really want, uh, because it seems so scary because they don't have the frame of reference of breaking their parents' hearts. (laughs) 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 So telling your partner who you are sexually just seems, uh, just seems impossible. And that's why we were better at it. Um, one of the things that I like about uh, Alain de Botton's work is, or a question that he thinks everyone should ask each other when they first get together is, in what way are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of that? Wait, whose uh, line was that? Oh, uh, it's Alain de Botton. I'm not familiar with Alain de Botton. I love that. I'm going to steal it. I mean, I'm going to credit the person, but I want to steal it. I really, I love reading Alain de Botton. He thinks of himself as sort of a pop philosopher. And he's really great to listen to because he says, you know, there are people doing the work of philosophers, but they're not doing it in a very very accessible sort of human life kind of way. And he writes a lot about relationships and getting the love that you need and how to how to go about that. And how to be more honest with yourself. He runs a site called um, The School of Life, and there are some really great essays on there. Um, and he also wrote a book called On Love that was when he was 22 or 23, and it's insufferable in places. Um, but it's also delightful and says a lot of really important things about what it is to have realistic expectations in a love relationship, et cetera, et cetera. That is so crucial to have realistic expectations. I often find myself in the position of telling people who, who are telling me that their partners or their love lives are falling short of their expectations, that they might need to adjust their expectations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Often our expectations are unrealistic and unworkable. Right. And that's 
this goes back to you saying you were the engine of your own misery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fix that, and then you fix a lot of things in your relationships. Um, But yeah, in what way are you crazy? That seems like, to me, that seems like a really wonderful way to to start off, I don't know, uh, something serious with someone. Um, Because you you get an idea of what kind of person they are and how open they are to be able to talk about these things. I don't know. It's like, like, I imagine it's like someone interviewing you for a job asking you what your shortcomings are. Uh And the person saying, I just care too much. And I'm too, you know, I'm a workaholic trying to make, uh, you know, offering up virtues or reasons you might want to hire them uh, as their shortcomings or the things they need to work on. Totally. I imagine beginning of a relationship asking someone, in what ways are you crazy? I'm crazy about you. I'm crazy about conolingus. I'm crazy. Like, Mm. but, but it's a great question. If people would answer it honestly, I think they're likely to answer it honestly. uh, If there are ways into the relationship, if they feel like the commitment's already there. Yeah, sure. But early on, you know, or before it's, it's, you know, three years and six kids later, if that's even, is that even possible with time? I don't even know. Um, I guess people could lie, but people do lie. I think people lying is almost the default setting. You know, I'm thinking about answering that question myself. In what way am I crazy? Well, I'm a workaholic, and there are places uh, on my body I cannot be touched because they just shut me down. Um, and there are oh, other ways am I crazy? Oh my god! Um, I have worst case scenario disorder, which can be very exhausting. Oh for my god, in my me life. too. But, but I call it apocalyptic thought syndrome. Ah, that's pretty good too. <laughs> yeah. And what's I don't know? Do you do you have this part of? Uh, apocalyptic thought syndrome where you have to say it out loud oh god i i have to entertain it in my own head if i say it out loud especially to someone who is involved in the situation it becomes automatically real and i can't i can't do it see what i have and i think what makes it more of a terror for the people around me is i have to say it out loud because it's the only thing that prevents it from coming true i can't get on a plane and think it's going to crash i have to get on a plane and say to terry it's going to crash we're going to die because that's like crossing yourself. That's that that, that wards off the evil. <laughs> well, you're very in touch with the thing, your your special flavor of crazy, which I think is is great. Really, I think all that that Dippleton is advocating for is like a degree of self awareness that your average layman who isn't terribly navel gazy and hasn't had a blog for fifteen years, um, like you know a lot of us millennials have, mm-hmm. might never might never get to unless invited. No, I think that's I think that's really good. It's self-awareness, but then there's also self-disclosure. And maybe uh, mm. people are often very self-aware, but disclosure invites rejection. Mm. And we've all met crazy people who, who just don't know what they're doing that's so awful and, and the ways that which they function. We can see it. We're outside of them. Mm-hmm. Relying on people to disclose they're crazy may not be a, a recipe for relationship harmony because you might not meet someone who uh, – is in touch with all the ways in which they are crazy and terrible. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I want to close this down a little bit. I wanted to talk to you about, about books. What, what have you last read? And, and what are some books that you would recommend people who want to have more love in their lives and have it be better and more consistent? What would you recommend they read? Shit that interests them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Golly, I don't know. Um, I don't read a lot of books about love and relationships. Uh, I would recommend though Esther Perel's book, uh, Mating in Captivity, and her new book, State of Affairs, that uh, I mm-hmm. have the opportunity to read uh, an advanced copy of, and it's like Esther, fucking genius. Yeah. And she's all about realistic expectations, about relationships and about love. And I think that that, I think realistic expectations are what it's all about. Mm-hmm. You know, I just read Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are by Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. I, I really loved uh, Seth's 
book because, you know, the more we know about what people are really thinking about or what they really want, perhaps that'll help us set realistic expectations in our mm-hmm. relationships. Um, so it kind of ties in. Beyond that, you know, I think what you bring to a relationship is you. Uh, and people typically don't love people for how articulate they are about love. People fall in love with people for the other things that they're about and bring to the table. You know, if you're going to spend most of your time, hopefully not all of your time, because that's not healthy, but <laughs> your life with someone, hopefully that person is compelling and interesting. You know, Terry and I have been together for a very long time, and we sit around and we have conversations, not about love and relationships. We have conversations about art and music and, and politics and, you know, the business of everyday life and the house needs this and the kid needs that. But mm-hmm. if I was going to recommend that someone read something, and this is going to sound crazy. Uh, Bring it. Go read George Bernard Shaw's plays, but don't read them for the dialogue. Read them for the stage directions. Because George Bernard Shaw's stage directions are art. And, and, and so smart and so funny and so elaborate and, and so expansive. And they're almost like little standalone essays all into themselves. And, mm. uh, and, he's, and you can see a writer at work so unselfconsciously because mm-hmm. this was just him talking to the, to, the, to, the, to the director or the actors and not talking to a readership necessarily. And, it's, mm-hmm. and they're fucking genius. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I have George Bernard Shaw's collected works at home. And every once in a while, I pull out one of the plays and I just sit there and start reading the stage directions, which makes me sound bananas. And also, when I talk about it, it makes me self-conscious because it sounds like I'm being, what is it the Brits call people who are odd and weird and kind of performative about it? Oh, I don't know. Are you looking it up? Yep. Eccentric. Oh, that word. Yeah, like I'm being an eccentric and, and self-consciously so, but it's actually true. And I, I do recommend it to people. Read, read Shaw's stage directions. They're, they're genius. And, and so when people ask me, you know, I want to have a, a good relationship uh, or, you know, I want love and all this, what should I be out there reading? And I'm like, okay, read Esther, but then go read the stuff that really interests you. You know, people mm-hmm. want to be with somebody who's interesting then be interesting, get interesting, you know, be the expert on whatever. Don't be a pedantic dick bag about it, but you want some recommendations of books to read. I would start with what books are you interested in? Mm-hmm. Fair, fair enough. As a last question, if you could offer a single piece of relationship advice as a gift to everybody in the world, gay, trans, straight, bi, however identified, what would it be? What would you tell them? people have to stop trying to perfect their relationships and accept them with their imperfections. That's the only way they, they last and survive. If, if what you want is a lasting long-term relationship, it's not what everybody wants. And I'm trying, I don't want to be prescriptive about that. Some people really will prefer, you know, a series of short-term, very fulfilling relationships over lives. And we talk about LTRs as if they're the only uh, successful kind of relationship. And a, an STR, a short-term relationship, can be successful too. If what you want is the LTR, Stop fixing it. You just have to accept your partner with all their flaws and faults and be accepted uh, the same way in return and just stop trying to make it perfect. It's never going to be perfect and you're going to drive yourself crazy and destroy your relationship if you attempt to perfect it. I think that that is really solid advice. Um, that's it. Thank you so much, Dan. I'll, uh, I'll let you know when this will be published. And it was just such a pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Welcome 
to the bookend, where we end with books. Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books, because that's the happiest of all endings. Oh, perfect. <laughs> that was a nice one. Okay, well, we just listened to a, a longish for us mm-hmm. interview with uh, Dan Savage. Yes. That was amazing. It was amazing. It was, um, I have to admit that this was kind of like, this is a dream come true for me. I've been listening to the Savage Love cast for years now and reading Dan's column. And the fact that he was excited to get on on the phone with us and talk about love and relationships was super exciting. And it was a wonderful conversation. And um, I hope that, I hope that you guys enjoyed listening to it. Um, I really enjoyed conducting it. (laughs) Good. Like an orchestra. Like an orchestra. Let's let's talk about what people should remember. Like, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that sticks out of my head. Obviously, every time I hear the word monogamy or monogamish, my ears kind of prick up just because I think it's interesting. Didn't coin that one. But yeah. what, um, like, what's the one takeaway? What's the one thing we should remember from that interview? Well, the thing that he really wanted to stress, I guess you could say it in two different ways. He He said it as workable agreements in the podcast, and he also said... He often says the term price of admission. If you want a long, happy, fulfilling relationship, if that's what your goal is, or really just to have a a happy, harmonious relationship in general, you have to be willing to to pay the price of admission for the person you love. If you want to ride this ride, you have to be willing to to pay this price of admission. For Dan, it's his husband, Terry, whom he adores, is kind of a slob in his own words. Um, And Dan will (laughs) go around and pick things up off the floor for him because he's realized it's less stressful for him and it contributes to harmony in their partnership for him to just do it because he loves terry and it's worth it to be with him what's the second way you you mentioned there might be two ways to express that right so in our talk he also says the term i believe it's workable agreements um and basically the takeaway is that we have to be willing to talk to each other and be honest and upfront about what our needs are and if you let your partner know what you need um they're much more willing to to be flexible with you or theoretically that's how it should work Negotiation and compromise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is also a tough one because another, like talking about topics and simplify that have a million books out there mm-hmm. and like a, a million geniuses out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we ask an expert, we ask this guy who's mm-hmm. like a legend. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's really amazing that it can come down to negotiation and compromise. Yeah. I'm just and, still kind of trying to get my head around that. But I agree. I like that. I like that topic. Well, what I really liked about about the questions I asked him, too, is, or his answer to what I asked him was, I said, "What's what do we do in relationships that is actually a lot simpler? Which mm-hmm. is a question I like to ask on every episode of this. What are we doing that's we're just making it too hard? Mm-hmm. And he kind of laughed and he said, well, the thing is, relationships are really complex. Right. And you have to be willing to accept the complexity. And find ways to deal with it. And I found that really refreshing, actually. Simplify. How did you say this? Simplify. The simplest thing is accepting complexity? Yeah. Why did you want to talk to him? Why did, we, why, did, why, why did we work so hard to get him on the show? I wanted to talk to him, A, as I said before, because he's kind of a personal hero of mine. And B, I really admire his work and think that he's done a lot of pioneering things in, in the sex and relationship space. As he says in our, our conversation... He was one of the first gay sex advice columnists giving advice primarily to straight people. And he's brought this whole new, fresh way of looking at a topic that is as old as the hills. Mm. Um, it's the, you know, sex and love and relationships are some of the most elemental things that we can talk about. And Dan brought fresh perspective to the trappings of, of modern romance and interrelating. And uh, I just think that it's a really valuable viewpoint. And he has, I also wanted to talk to him because he tends to have this way of 
being very decisive about things that can be very complex. Yeah. And um, he just has rules of thumb that are super useful. Yeah. I mean, one of the dreams we had for this season was like to be able to talk to somebody the way you can talk to a friend who always has the right answer. Mm -hmm. Like you talk to them for like 40 minutes and you're like spitting into a, I don't know how to get my thoughts together. Da, da, da. And the person's like, yeah, like negotiate. Negotiate and compromise. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Here's how it is. Like just do take this one step. Mm -hmm. Like you're missing, you can't see this thing because your, your head's in the weeds. Mm -hmm. But like, here's the one thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I thought that, I thought that, that you guys, you guys did that really well in the interview. Yeah. So since we are in the bookend where we end with books. Let's do that. Let's end with books. What three books did you choose? We this, got three books. This, this one. Yeah. So the first one is the the sort of seminal challenging sexuality text. It's called Sex at Dawn. It's by Casilda Jitta and Christopher Ryan. Um, it's categorized actually in the Blinkist Library as science and anthropology. It doesn't even, when I looked for it, it didn't come up under sex and relationships. That mm. has to be recategorized now. But it's because uh, Jeta and Ryan did a whole lot of research on why monogamy in Western societies is essentially incompatible with human nature. Uh, this book is about the evolution of human sexuality with a, a really strong focus on our primate ancestors and the invention of agriculture, believe it or not. It's one of, the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an eye, let's just say it's an eye opening. It is an eye opener. You will. It changed the way that I thought about a lot of things. Yeah, it's the kind of book that like you're kind of flipping through at the at the, at the bookstore or at the library. You read something and you kind of like look up and look around. Like, oh boy! Or yeah. it's the kind of book that you 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 put down and you're like, I'm a little uncomfortable right now. Yeah. Let me inspect what this means. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> I think it's great if reading doesn't challenge us. What will? Then might as well be watching cooking shows. <laughs> All right. What's the second one? I love cooking shows. Just saying. The second one is uh, is a newer book. It's called Come As You Are. It's by Emily Nagoski. That's a pun. Get it? Come As You Are. Sorry. Just making sure everyone got that. Thank you for breaking that down for me, Ben. Um, this one also has a pretty a pretty heavy scientific bent. Um, Come As You Are talks about why people... It talks about a lot of things, but among them are uh, why people who have trouble getting in the mood have that trouble in the first place. And it also uses the car metaphor that you won't want to miss. Um, <laughs> okay, let me guess. <laughs> and speaking of cars and driving, it also explores why the idea of a sex drive is actually a myth. Yeah. And... The third book, speaking of myths, actually, I think you should introduce this one because you actually spoke to Rachel Hills, who's the author of this book. Yeah, we had we had a we had a Blinkist. Remember the old Blinkist podcast? Oh, the old Blinkist podcast. We had um, she came on the show, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I mean, her book, The Sex Myth, is kind of about the myths and understandings that surround people's sexuality today. It's also about how society frames this. You know, this thing where you hear people talking about sex all the time. And you, people are either bragging how many one night stands they've had, or perfect their sex life is, or it's they're just talking about, oh, my sex life is terrible. Oh, I'm still a virgin. Oh, I can't seem to whatever have the sex life I want to have. And the whole thing is like, just why is that such a central focus of who we are? Mm. Like, why is why is that? Like, mm -hmm. we need to like chill out on the whole sex thing. And in so doing, it might free. Sorry, that's a bad way to say it. We need to de. We need to make sex not the central focus of who how we define ourselves and she does sort of trace how society has has applied a new set of ideas about about sex like how we're supposed to be having sex how mm -hmm. we're supposed to talk about it mm -hmm. which again is pretty eye-opening and and i think like mm -hmm. somewhat freeing liberating when you read it to be like oh yeah i'm not like it's not that yeah. bad like everything's fine like you know we're all right doing it fine this is all, if we're all doing it fine, this is all, I think that these three recommendations are all to a certain extent about paradigm busting when it comes to, to what we believe about sex and love. Um, just new ways to, to look at it that maybe decomplicate some of the ideas that you have in your mind about what sex and relationships and love have to be like. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, then let's just end with that. All right. Thanks for listening to Simplify. This episode is produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Caitlin Schiller, Nika Mavrodi, and Odie Constantino, who once memorized the first 10 arguments of Plato's symposium to impress his now girlfriend. Not bad. If you enjoyed this episode and feel you learned something, please consider sending it to someone else who you think might learn something from it. We're really grateful for those of you who've already subscribed to Simplify on Apple Podcasts, Overcasts, um, Pocket Casts, whatever you use. And a big shout out to those of you, I mean, early days here, but those of you who've left us ratings and reviews, it's really helpful. And if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to add a review or rating, we'd be very, very grateful. It really does help. Simplify is made by the same people who make Blinkist, a learning app that takes the world's best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them into focused little capsules of audio and text you can listen to or read in just 15 minutes. You can get 14 days free by going to Blinkist.com friends and putting in this episode's special voucher code, which is SAVAGE, as in Dan Savage. Pretty clever, I know. Send me and Caitlin an email at podcast at Blinkist.com. Let us know if you were, I don't know, shocked by something in this episode or reassured. Personally, I find Dan Savage often causes both those reactions in me. Shock and sort of like a soothing, comforting kind of feeling. (laughs) Maybe that's just what good advice does. We'll be back next week with another episode of Simplify. In the meantime, be good. This is Ben checking out.